namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa aparutade sangamatassa tawara so this will be my last uh, Sunday talk here, and I just express my appreciation for the hospitality offered by the Sangha and the lay community, and uh, very pleasing to see so many people interested in the Dhamma. And when I was in Thailand the past 10 years before returning to the West, I, I, I was getting old. I left Amravati in and when I was 76. And then I thought I'd pass away in Thailand. I already have a coffin waiting for me. And <laughs> I when I was 86, I still quite healthy. So <laughs> I came back to live in Amravati in the UK because I spent so many years of my life there, and uh, I thought just to be able to share what I've learned a lifetime in this uh, living within this particular tradition in this form, and speaking from experience. So. There's been a request to reflect on the Brahma Viharas, and, and these are always inspiring to reflect upon because they they represent, you know, what they call the divine abodes or the abodes of Brahma. Vihara means an abode. Brahma is uh, is the god, divine. And so what is divine, you know, and then we we have various, just that English word, we have certain beliefs in divine beings or <clears throat> divinity is something very high and, and uh, we're mere mortals. And Brahma is, uh, you know, if you're a Hindu is, a, is the ultimate deity. And uh, so this is inspired thinking because it's concepts like metta is the first Brahmavihara, which is loving kindness, and karuna, which is compassion, and mudita, sympathetic joy, and upeka, which is equanimity. So these are realizable states. They're not like um, something 
that you've got to get, but through understanding Dhamma, then you awaken to the true nature of divinity, which you can't claim on a personal level. So when, when you go through the reflective practices, you know, like the, is the body divine? Is that what I want, a, a, a divine body? And of course, that's ridiculous. And the body's not divine. <laughs> and then uh, my emotions, my thoughts, my memories, are they divine? My ideals can sound divine. Like loving kindness or unconditional love sounds very divine and compassion universal compassion is is really uh, you know it's beautiful where we understand the suffering of of all sentient beings in a way that is empathetic and kind and compassionate that's a beautiful quality that human beings have and mudita sympathetic joy and that's um, that was, you know, just the, the joy of the beauty of the planet, the joy of beautiful friends, the joy of the flowers, or the joy that arises from autumn in New Hampshire. And there's so much joy with in this realm that we're experiencing. But is, is it come from personal uh, conditioning? Or is it natural, sympathetic joy? Because when you try to personalize it and try to feel sympathetic joy as an ideal, it's, you know, you, you, your personality doesn't really feel sympathetic joy. You hold it as an ideal, you want it, but what is sympathetic joy is joy itself, which is, a part of the human experience or conscious, we experiencing consciousness through the senses. And then equanimity, <clears throat> upeka. So upeka is equanimous, peaceful, and, uh, and we all want that. We want a peaceful life, peaceful mind, peaceful emotions, but our emotions, are they ever peaceful? You know, can you just, when you feel peace from some events that happen in your life, you experience the stillness and bliss of a sunset or the autumn in New Hampshire, then can you sustain that with, with the clinging to, I want life to be like this? Immediately, the joy of the moment is lost when we try to hold on to experiences of joy. And I think there's a Blake poem called, He Who Clings to Life the joy, uh, the joy of life vanishes, but he who kisses the joy as it flies lives in eternity sunrise. So the English poet that is very, has very a lot of dharmic resonance. So in 
when we uh, try to develop the Brahma Viharas, it's oftentimes done from the, I want to feel uh, unconditioned love and uh, sympathetic joy and compassion. And then we, we have various techniques of spreading metta, you know, kind of traditional forms, which as an ideal you can do, but in experience, living together with somebody else or in a sangha or in society, do you really feel sympathetic joy for all sentient beings? And of course, in many things we we feel we take sides. You know, we on the intellectual level is very divisive. We divide good from bad and heaven from hell and and um, war and peace. And so that's the nature of thought is is it's a very divisive function that we acquire after we're born. We're not born thinking in any language at all, but we're conscious. So that's important to realize consciousness isn't about thoughts, but it's the reality of here and now that we all recognize, we're all conscious, the uh, forms that are sitting here are all conscious forms. And, uh, but when we, when we believe that consciousness is personal, then it's very unsteady because that means that we're subject to, to our personal conditioning, our ego, our cultural prejudices and biases, religious biases, because that's how we're conditioned with life, with beliefs in, in, in ideals, in doctrines, in creeds, in democracy, and and whatever, you know, they're all belief systems made up by human beings. And we're conditioned with these. So in uh, the first fetter, the Sakyaditi, which is the ego, you know, you begin to investigate. Can my ego feel unconditioned love for all sentient beings? And by just observing, it can't. It's impossible. <laughs> so, so <laughs> the ego is very divisive. It's, it's, you know, it can imagine, kind of create a sense of loving kindness for all sentient beings as an ideal. But the experience of life is not ideal. It's about pleasure and pain sorrow and grief, loss, about problems, personal problems with others, with society, with religion, with belief systems that you acquired. You know, so in the terms of, you begin to see that the personality is uh, ephemeral, very untrustworthy thing to stabilize in is your personal views your personal attitudes, uh, what you agree with is right and what you feel is wrong, and clinging to these views, right and wrong, good and bad, then we, we create endless unpleasant feelings towards those who don't agree. 
and that's the experience of the sense sensory conditioning that we have and it but it is uh, consciousness itself is it personal and through my investigation i can believe it's personal because i was brought up to believe that the consciousness is inside me that my consciousness is is separate from your consciousness and uh, because i feel separate as a separate form the separation this this clinging to the, the separate appearances of the, that the senses create uh, is you know very deluding and that's why it's hard to have world peace and and fairness and justice for all even though these are you know beautiful ideals but can you sustain justice for all and perfect democracy in in a realm where everything's changing and where people have different conditioning different expectations different prejudices biases beliefs because then we con- conflict with each other so on a personal level you the witness to the person personal conditioning is awareness or you know awareness is what i use the word awareness conscious awareness can be aware of personal conditioning so each one of us has a different personal conditioning even you know you brought up the same family my sister and i we were very different persons <laughs> and uh, we were brought up by the same parents and the same kind of culture and religious conditioning so metta you know investigations into loving kindness is pure conscious awareness because that isn't conditioned by right and wrong good or bad awareness is is natural state of being here and now we're aware that we're conscious at this moment is like this and so it's not something you've got to get but something you begin to trust and then conscious awareness is non-critical so when you abide in conscious awareness or mindfulness it's silent it's non it's it doesn't discriminate right from wrong good or bad male or female and it's not personal i can't i can claim it with english words as my consciousness but that's not really what you find out when you are mindful and in investigating the experiences that we have as individuals so beginning to recognize loving kindness or metta is a natural state of of being it's 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 uh, not a created state it's not personal 
includes everything, everybody. And so when we spread metta, we spread it loving kindness to devils, to angels. You know, it's per per perfectly equal amounts of metta to the to the worst, uh, the best, the gods, the Brahma god, or or atheists, or or uh, maniacs, or serial killers. <laughs> when we divide it up, when you talk about metta to pedophiles or serial killers, it's on a personal level, can you do that? Is that possible? So, you know, you feel those are the, you know, two very conditions that we tend to regard as very bad. And so on the impersonal awareness, you can, because pedophiles are, have the same consciousness that we all have. It's not their consciousness, it's pure consciousness. It's, uh, it's the deathless reality that we share with all sentient beings. So then you begin to understand what unconditioned love is, or loving kindness in terms of the translations of metta. So at moments when we realize our true nature is conscious awareness, we aren't condemning or making judgments about ourselves or others. It's impossible. As a person, I can be very judgmental. So, because I've developed, you know, a strong sense of what's right and what's wrong and what's good and what's bad. But this is tested out for yourself, you know, to, as a personal, as you see yourself as a, a separate individual person, can it really have loving kindness for pedophiles or serial killers? And so then, uh, you know, because they're wrong, and, and we, <laughs> and so that is a judgment we make with words in any language. All languages have that dualistic function of discriminating between right and wrong, good and bad, heaven and hell. Then karuna, compassion, you know, then we, we can be generous with compassion, like we can feel sorry for pedophiles, serial killers, in one way, because we know it's, it's a hell realm that they live in. So on a rational level, we can, we can feel sorry for them. But at the same time, their, their consciousness is our consciousness. So the conditions of uh, that we are karmically connected to may be very good, very, very generous, very kind, or we've brought up in just survival communities where we're just trying to survive in a, an unpleasant conditioning experience. 
and you know we're programmed, conditioned to to do horrible acts or think horrible thoughts. So these are, you know, are the differences on the condition level, and we're all different one from another. So in loving kindness, you're not, it's not judgmental. In karuna or compassion, it's recognizing that we're subject to these delusions we've been conditioned by. We can't help it. We can't, if we've been programmed to be a serial killer, if that's how we, we learn to survive or how we get lost in our, in our feelings, that's, that's uh, you know, one has a sense of compassion because we're, we're caught in very negative, very dangerous conditions that we act or speak upon. And we make others miserable and as well as ourselves. So in terms of compassion, you, you can understand why the world is the way it is. Why is the United States like this right now, politically? And why is there so much confusion, so much division? And, you know, on the right and wrong level, we, we take sides, what's right and what's wrong. But on the compassionate level, we begin to see that the conditioning is just that way. It's a karmic, what we call karma which is about cause and effect. And if you've been conditioned to hate, to, to uh, just take advantage of others, uh, no matter what, to just follow brutal instincts and desires, you know, then you really can't help that as a person because that's, you know, you can, you, people can tell you you're a criminal and a serial killer and you're wrong, but the conditioning is, is one where that kind of activity happens. And so in, when we understand that, then compassion comes from mindfulness rather than personal views or opinions, prejudices and biases. So these are divine qualities. Compassion is a, divine, is a divine quality that we can realize for ourselves, such as metta, karuna, mudita. And so mudita, they, they is about, you know, envying others, being critical of others, feeling jealous, uh, and, uh, you know, putting down others that that uh, you you're jealous of or fear, and so we we don't have uh, this sense of sympathetic joy when when some monk uh, achieves enlightenment, <laughs> and we don't feel we are, <laughs> or somebody claims to be, or. <laughs> Or somebody gets, you know, in the office more attention, more money than you do, or, or you know, and so uh, sympathy, 
sympathetic joy on a personal level is impossible because we're not conditioned for, for that. So we have images of goody two-shoes and things like that where, where we feel glad for everybody. And, but then we tend to be cynical about that because that's not our experience. We're envious of others. Envy the poor of the rich, and the rich over the richer, and then we know the different status in in social situations, whether you're, uh, you know, high class or low class, or whatever. Then these are, you know, to envy the the aristocracy or the king. Or, you know, I've been listening to uh, some history of England and. You know, it's all about jealousy and fear. You know, not about mudita sympathetic joy. So, <laughs> British history is very interesting. <laughs> it's very colorful. And so, <laughs> and then Upeka is uh, equanimity, which, when I first came across that term as a samanera, as, as uh, upeka, you said indifference. You're just totally indifferent. And that didn't sound very inspiring. You know, I don't, I don't care what happens to you. <laughs> I'm equanimous. <laughs> Who wins the election? Hey, I don't care, I'm equanimous. And, <laughs> Practicing equanimity. And, you know, what is equanimity? And it's, it's not about thoughts or sides or just being kind of idealistic and generous or totally indifferent to, to the society you're living in, but it's, it's uh, equanimity is balance. Metta and, and upeka balance each other out. They're virtues that are highly recommended. So equanimity, I found, is upeka, is the natural state of conscious awareness. Metta, loving kindness, non-critical conscious awareness, which is peaceful and still, silent, is equanimous. And there's no, you know, it's not where hatred or jealousy or fear arise. Then in the mind, the con conditioned realm is created out of that. It manifests from consciousness. So, and then the, the so the world that we live in, the planet, the sun and moon, stars, uh, all the animal kingdoms, everything is manifestations of forms in consciousness. So we're all in the same consciousness. The ticks, the beetles, the turkeys here, same consciousness as me. <laughs> so when, you, when I look at a turkey, I... <laughs> 
I feel connected <laughs> because there is that connection. Or looking at all of you, there's a connection that is, that is ultimate reality rather than personal knowing each one of you or, you know, having views and opinions about you as a person, as an emotional being. And that, then that gets into critical discrimination. But when we begin to, to experience loving kindness as a silence, but it's not a dead silence, like uh, you go unconscious and, or become a zombie, it's co pure consciousness is bliss, and it's here and now. It's not something you, you get through practicing meditation, it's something that is realizable here and now. And so even though, you know, I could understand that when Lung Pa Chao would give talks, but, uh, you know, then my experience was very much bound into reacting to what I see, hear, smell, taste, touch, and think that, uh, on a personal way. So I was a person from an American background living in northeastern Thailand, which was a very different culture, the third world at that time, rice growing villages. We went binabot alms collecting in, in villages, village Thailand in the northeast. Everything was very different. The conditioning was different. The Vinay is a very different kind of conditioning. It was based on skillful and unskillful action and speech. So it wasn't alien to me because I was brought up to be a moral person, uh, you know, as trying to be virtuous as a moral individual. But it's much more complicated than the Ten Commandments or the Five Precepts, as all the monks can verify. So. You know, learning to to live within the the designated structures of what right speech and right action, and then even though I could appreciate that ideally, you know, the experience of of uh, the fear of being doing something wrong, the fear of making an offense, of being criticized by other monks, by being scolded by Ajahn Chah, you know, so the, the, the fear of being chastised or excluded or disrobed or all that, you know, was part of the experience that, that one has and when one is taking such a refined level of uh, training as Vinaya. But the whole point was awareness to Lung Po Cha. So then one could take a, a you know, like a, I was a student at University of California in Berkeley, which was no boundaries, just go out and experience life, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> which was kind of fun when you're young. But it doesn't get you anywhere. You know, it's just very, end up very confused. Because just following desires, 
and with no sense of, uh, you know, even doing things you know are morally not right, you have to live with that because you remember, you remember it. So you feel guilty, you feel self-disparagement, you feel, uh, uh, you know, even though you can say it doesn't matter, I don't believe in God or anything like that, just anything goes. And, uh, you know, as an ideal, that, that was rather appealing. But several years of that kind of behavior was a, uh, you know, the result was not freedom or happiness, but just more emotional confusion, guilt, and self-criticism and fear. So, you know, recognizing that, and from my experience of having the opportunity to live in a hedonistic lifestyle, was you know had its pleasurable moments, but they were not sustainable. And as you develop, if you're brought up with a strong sense of Christian morality, then you're conditioned to be critical of such behavior. And, uh, and you can fight against it. You can rebel, become a rebel or a heretic or anything like that. Those are just reactions to the conditioning process. It's not out of wisdom that we rebel. So in 1960s Berkeley, there's a lot of rebellion going on, <laughs> which could be quite inspiring in one way. But uh, also, it didn't, it, you know, it, one could put down the, the kind of rigid views of moral behavior and belief in God and Christianity and the kind of rigid attitudes of 1950s American culture, which was very black and white. And uh, you can rebel against it. But even rebelling against it isn't very equanimous or peaceful. When you're a rebel, you look down on conformists, social conformists. So you, you know, you, you develop a sense of superiority by rebelling against the system. So you've just, you know, you're caught in this, this maelstrom of confusing ideas because it's all coming from the intellect, from the thinking mind. And it can be, you know, one can rebel in a skillful way or, or an unskillful way, but it's still, still just operating on the condition level of what I believe or what I've been told to believe or what my generation believes and uh, a modern American uh, ways of looking at life. I remember it was a beatnik time in, in San Francisco. It was the hippie star in the 1960s. And that was, that was very appealing to me. <laughs> and so, you know, then when I became a monk in Thailand, 
some of the early monks that ordained were ex-hippies. <laughs> so so it was it was fun to rebel when you're young and thumb your nose at middle class, white middle class traditions. But uh, also it it doesn't lead to equanimity or unconditioned love. I mean, you can be just as arrogant as a nonconformist as somebody who's very obedient to every rule. So on a personal level, there's no there's there's nothing much you can do but recognize the personal through wisdom, through awareness, in a non-critical way. Whatever you feel, however you were brought up or conditioned, whatever your karma might be, it is the way it is. It, you know, whether it's moral and good or immoral and bad or whether it's whatever views you have about right and wrong, you know, you, you're not becoming uncritical, but you're no longer bound into the critical conditioning that we tend to identify with. So that's freedom from the conditioned realm that we can realize for ourselves. And that's equanimity, upeka, silent witnessing in the present moment is like this. And then I began to notice the, what I call sound of silence, the kind of cosmic pulse that's here and now. And when I ordained as a Samanera in Nong Kai, I, I was, as I said, referred to many times this book, Word of the Buddha book, collection of, of uh, Buddhist teachings that um, everything is impermanent, all conditions are impermanent. And so having had a previous interest in Zen Buddhism, you know, I'd read many Zen Buddhist books, I, I thought I'd make up a koan. So is there something permanent? You know, so in the investigation of emotions and memories and that, that I was doing through just watching the, um, these, uh, these thoughts, these memories, these emotions, repressed emotions. I was having a lot of repressed emotions, being all alone. And uh, emotions that I avoided when I could distract myself with, with sense objects. But being alone in a hut in the forest, you know, suddenly there's nothing you can distract yourself with. And you, and you suffer a lot of restlessness and confusion and you, you've learned a meditation technique that doesn't work anymore. And so you, you're kind of 
don't know what to do. And these repressed emotions, you know, were, were very frightening because they, they were nasty emotions, full of anger and hatred. And I'd always tried to be a kind of friendly and affable person. And, uh, you know, so I developed a affable personality by repressing the anger, resentment, that, that would come up in consciousness. I learned to, to, because I was punished for it when I was a child for showing anger. So, so like children learn how to survive and they, <laughs> they develop repressive techniques to survive in a family. So uh, I'd done that. My family was a very good family but they were not necessarily wise family. And so all I could do was, you know, I started studying the, the scriptural teachings of the Buddha and, and he said, all conditions are impermanent. So I believed that. I can see, I actually believed because it's written in this book and the Buddha is supposed to have said this, that all conditions are impermanent. Then in Vipassana meditations, you start examining impermanence. It's not just believing what the Buddha said, but it's all about investigation. So I, you know, just started observing, uh, uh, you know, what I see is very obviously impermanent. And, uh, and what I could taste or touch or smell. So everything is impermanent. But is there something impermanent? Is there something impermanent? And so this was, the, you know, the, the concept of anatta, no self, I could not understand till I met Lumpur Cha. Because I felt, you know, it's me that's being mindful. It's me that's meditating. It's, it's me that, that is observing the impermanence of conditioned phenomena. But what is it that really observes phenomena? Is it, and then the, the five khandhas, where the, la, the fifth khanda is consciousness, I think that's impermanent because it says so in the, in the scriptures. The five khandhas are the, you know, the body, emo, uh, feelings of pleasure, pain, memories, emotions, and consciousness. So I just assumed consciousness was impermanent. But then being aware of this koan, was there something that was permanent? I became aware of what I refer to as sound of silence. Sometimes I just, would, everything would drop away and there'd be just this resonating pulse kind of, it's not a real sound. And I thought, that's always here and now, even though I don't remember it. You know, whenever I remember it, I hear it, I notice it. So maybe the Buddha got it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> but then I felt as a Buddhist monk, I shouldn't say that, it's being heretical. <laughs> because loyal to the tradition, uh, and then meeting Lung Pa Cha a year later, I thought, uh, 
you know, he was, as I referred to many times, the, the Bhutto reference, Buddha, as the knowing, the witness. And suddenly that just resonated with me, the witness. And Dhamma, suddenly, uh, because it's only Buddha that knows Dhamma, according to the scriptures, the Buddha knows the Dhamma. So if you, and the Buddha is actually awareness itself. You know, it's, it's not personal, me practicing awareness, but it's, it's here and now consciousness. And it's the same consciousness we're all experiencing at this moment. And it's still, and it has no beginning or ending and it's un, not created. So just by figuring out that consciousness is not a thing. It's not a thing that, that is impermanent, except through the senses, like sensory consciousness is impermanent. So we, in the five khandhas, that, that implies because you start with the body, with the feelings, with the uh, memories, with the emotions that we experience through seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and thinking, then we, we think of consciousness as inside. When we talk about somebody dying, then the consciousness leaves the body and uh, goes somewhere else. So it's kind of like a soul or a spirit. So in terms of, there's no conflict with the five khandhas, because that's clearly defined as part of the physical form, the manifestations of form that wouldn't be possible without consciousness. And consciousness has no, it doesn't manifest in any way. There's no, you can't objectify it. So, you know, it's not, it's something you realize, and this is what enlightenment is, realizing what your true nature is, is pure conscious awareness. And you, you, and just by investigating the forms and understanding that they, they are all impermanent, that's true. There's no, you know, everything, even the solar system is impermanent. The sun and moon and stars. And, and the, I remember uh, before I ordained, I was in the Peace Corps and I was, I, I got a hold of the Heart Sutra, the Mahayana Heart Sutra. And I started reading it. I said, this is absolute nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it makes no sense to me. And, <laughs> and because I was interpreting it from a rational conditioning, that I was very attached to it because it's not rational. but is realizable. And that's what the Buddha's whole emphasis of Buddhist teachings is to point the way to where we as individual forms can realize universal loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. So then the Brahma Viharas became something not just an ideal for me, 
not something that you know you'd like to as a person to develop compassion and and get rid of jealousy and envy and fear and and become equanimous in a peaceful way not in an indifferent way and uh, you know as a person you know i could quite be inspired by those ideals because they're beautiful but as a person i found i couldn't really sustain that and so you as a person you start criticizing yourself because a good bhikkhu should love uh, should have spread metta for all sentient beings and and uh, you know that's an ideal that you feel obliged to try to live up to you know so then you find the realities of experience in sangha life <laughs> motions of absolute frustration <laughs> aversion and so 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 in terms of experience, you know, it's the five khandhas that experience. We experience through the senses. And consciousness doesn't experience except through senses. So the manifestations are forms that arise and cease. But when you let go of the forms, then what's left is pure conscious awareness, which has no form. And that's metta, and that's upeka, loving kindness, unconditioned love, and equanimity, just stillness, it's silent, it's bliss.